As I've talked about a couple of times in the last couple of sessions, and why I recommended this <clears throat> book, What Happens After I Die, Jewish Views of Life After Death by uh, my two of my colleagues, Rifat Sonsino and Daniel B. Syme, um, this book it is um, sort of a, an overview of a dozen different Jewish attitudes about death and dying and afterlife. Uh, first, there's a little historical from biblical times up to the present, and then there's a, a bunch of current rabbinic thought. Uh, and what's revealing about it is, and why I like the book, is because it it teaches that there's no such thing as what does Judaism teach about. You know, there's Judaism's and there's a whole range of what Judaism teaches and says about death, dying, and afterlife, and along with almost every other subject, as you know. That's why we have all those jokes about two Jews and three opinions or six opinions or whatever it happens to be. Because, again, remember, we've always been, virtually always in the thousands of years of history, a minority in a majority culture. You know, yes, now we're back in Israel in a majority for a while. I mean, for a short amount of time, we've been a majority. But essentially, throughout Jewish history, uh, post-biblical and biblical, really, we've been essentially a minority uh, in a majority culture. The corpus of Jewish thought, of Jewish law, certainly Talmud, Mishnah, all of that, which made the beginning of the Jewish law over the sort of 500 years of, of its most dynamic creation period, we were spread in Babylonia. Some of us were in, in Israel, but most of us, the real centers of learning, were in Babylonia. You know, and then we were in Spain, and then we were in Europe, and then you know the great, the great seminaries of of Europe, and then we're in America, which is, by the way, we are now living through the greatest flourishing of Jewish culture in all of Jewish history. Just to put everything in perspective, you know, uh, I was at a, a conference, a uh, one-day conference, half-day conference. Uh, last week with uh, Dr. Stephen Windmuller, who was the, he just retired as the director of the Jewish School of Communal Service at the Hebrew Union College. And a uh, brilliant guy. And he was talking about um, uh, what will Judaism look like in 2050? I figured if he could talk about that, I can talk about afterlife. So, um, first of all, that because you know who knows what Judaism is going to look like in America in 2050, but <coughs> part of what he was talking about was the um, sort of the struggles that institutions, synagogues have, the decline of synagogues in America. Um, that is across the board when you step back and look at synagogues as an institution in all of the official movements of the Reform movement, the Conservative movement, Reconstruction movement. We're growing a little bit. But everybody else is sort of declining, um, you know, movement-wise. What used to be big buildings are now smaller buildings. What used to be big congregations are mostly uh, smaller. Um, and it's true of Christianity as well. If you look at the, all the research about uh, the, every Christian denomination other than the most evangelical, every, every Christian denomination is shrinking in its formal affiliation. You know, people that are willing to be members and stand up and say, I'm a member there. People show up. There's no lack of passion about spirituality and issues like this that affect the individual. 
but, you know, he was talking about the sort of personalization of religion in America, which is along with every other aspect of our social life in America that we're now very personalized. We all walk around with our individual phones that have our individual email and our individual sort of profiles and life on them, everything. And it's like what? It's all WIIFM, you know. That's our the only uh, station we all listen to. What's in it for me? WI, that's how we tune in. What's in it for me over there? What's in it for me in this? Should I go to this? What's in it for me? Um, not to sound cynical. I'm not trying in any way to sound cynical. In fact, the opposite, because even though he was talking about some of these challenges, Israel challenges that we have, the fact of the matter is we're living in the greatest flourishing of Jewish life ever in the thousands of years of Jewish history. There are more Jewish music being written and books being written and plays being written and culture and art and and uh, Jewish studies programs on colleges. There are 10 colleges with Jewish studies programs in China today. 10 colleges with Jewish studies programs in China today. Okay, all over the world, Judaism's re-emerging in Eastern Europe. Judaism all over the world, and certainly in America, this is the center of really this and Israel, of course, the two most vibrant centers of Jewish culture. So um, it's not all bleak, and some things remain eternal. I mean, we wrestle with the same questions as long as there've been human beings. We have wrestled with what does it mean to live? What's the purpose of life? And why care at all? Why have any hope and faith and think positively when we're all going to die anyway? Which is what most people go through at some point in their lives. Often as adolescents, older adolescents, and often in college and wrestling with what's the purpose of it? What's it all mean? You know, when uh, it's going to end because it's impossible to contemplate our own end for I mean, literally, it's impossible because our brains work the way their brains work. So um, so we look for answers to because we know that uh, the death is inevitable. So um, afterlife. Uh, does Judaism teach that there's an afterlife? Definitely. I mean, throughout the majority of Jewish history, Judaism taught and uh, that there was the, something called the Olam Haba, the world to come. Um, what changed over the centuries of Jewish life was what we meant by that term, the Olam Haba, the world to come. You know, in the, in the Torah, in our f- most ancient uh, sacred texts, there's very little mention of, there doesn't literally say Olam Haba in the Torah, it says it in later rabbinic writings, the only references in the Torah are references to Abraham dies and it says he was gathered to his kin. He lived a ripe old age and he was gathered to his kin. It says that a couple of times. People are gathered to their kin. That's what death represented. Now, since we don't know the mind of the author, whoever wrote that in the Torah thousands of years ago, um, by the way, sorry, but you know how my mind works goes off in tangents. Um, did anyone read recently about the discovery of the oldest Hebrew writing in Israel? The fragment of the oldest Hebrew writing? Uh, I saw it today on something I was reading. 
an archaeological dig. They found a, it's written on a piece of pottery. Um, and, I mean, literally, it, 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 uh, in the Elah Valley in Israel by archaeologist Yosef Garfinkel of the Hebrew University. Um, this particular oldest Hebrew writing, see a picture of it, it almost doesn't, it doesn't really look like modern Hebrew at all, it's, uh, but it looks like the ancient Hebrew writing, uh, dated to the 10th century BCE. So that's, what, 3,000 years ago? Um, I'm terrible at math, but it must be 3,000 years ago. The, uh, and what's amazing is this is literally the oldest piece of the, the archaeological archaeologists can trace of Hebrew writing. And I love it because it's so contemporary. This could be... Uh, not the Republican, but, and I'm not being political, just this could be maybe the Democratic platform coming up, given what Republican candidates are all saying. This is what it said in the oldest, literally the oldest example of Hebrew writing that we have ever found. Uh, it was during the reign of King David, evidently. Uh, I'll just quote it. It's five lines, short lines. Uh, it says, You shall not do it, but worship Adonai, Judge the slave and the widow. Judge the orphan and the stranger. Plead for the infant. Plead for the poor and the widow. Rehabilitate the poor at the hands of the king. Protect the poor and the slave. And support the stranger. That's the oldest Hebrew writing that we found. Isn't that cool? It's very cool. Oh, it's cool if you're a liberal person like me. Anyway, so, um, in any event, throughout... In, in Torah time, we started with vague references to being gathered to our kin. When we started to understand what the Olam Haba, what that meant, it either meant, it could be meant literally, that is, what do we do with people when they die? We bury them. Yes, that was not a rhetorical question. We, we bury them. We, in the ancient world, they used to bury them in caves, um, often. You know, that was the famous story of Abraham buying the cave of Machpelah to bury his, uh, his, uh, family in. It became the official family burial cave. Um, buried them in caves, we buried them in the ground. And so it could just literally mean you went back to, you went to put you in the same place we put your ancestors when they died, in the ground. Or it could mean a place that you go to where you see them. You're going to be gathered to your kin, meaning reunited, because the Hebrew could be either way. It could, it could literally mean either thing, that you are reunited with your kin, with those who went before you. And the original references to uh, the place you didn't want to go when you died was Gehenim, which um, was based on, as we said uh, before, the, a literal physical place there was the valley of Gehidom right outside of the, where the old city of Jerusalem currently is, where the uh, the uh, idolaters used to offer human sacrifices to their gods. So that was like the worst thing you could possibly imagine in ancient Jewish mind, so that was certainly hell, was going somewhere where people, you know, would sacrifice human beings, children mostly, um, and whatever they did, we didn't want to do. So, uh, But the notion of an Olam Hamba, of a world to come, has always been a fundamental part of Jewish thought and Jewish theology 
in Jewish life, there's no question but that um, there is something. Um, the Talmud says all Israel has a share in the Olam Haba, in the world to come, which meant that you didn't have to actually do anything to, to, to get in. You just had to be a part of the Jewish people. If you were part of the Jewish people, you got in. Well, that's one rabbinic, traditional rabbinic idea. The, another traditional rabbinic idea from the same Talmud was the Chassidei Omot HaOlam Yesh Lahem Chalak Ba'olam Haba, which means the righteous of all nations have a place in the world, a share in the world to come. Another good traditional Jewish notion. It's not just us. God calling? Calling me home? No. The, um, the, uh, it's a nice sound though. I like the sound. When Didi's phone goes off, it goes some blasting Spanish song. Anyway, um, I like it, but that one's like, you know, it'd be prettier to wake up to that anyway. No. So, so, uh, just trying to include you, that's all. Thanks. I want you to feel included. Um, so the the counter notion to the, all of Israel has a place in the world to come is everybody can get there. Whatever the world to come is, the righteous of all nations have a place in the world to come. Of course, if you say that, it implies those who are not righteous perhaps don't. You know, because otherwise why would you say, Chassidei omot ha'olam yesh lachem? But they have a place in the world to come. So there, throughout Jewish history, beginning with the rabbinic period, uh, the turn of that millennium, the, the, the powerful ethical teachings of the rabbinic tradition kept inserting itself in our ideas of afterlife. You know, um, a little different than the traditional Christian idea, but not altogether different. That is, you should earn a place in the world to come by acting, doing mitzvot. The way we get to do it is we have these, quote, 613 mitzvot in Jewish tradition. So the way you ensure that you're going to get in the world to come is you do the mitzvot. You know, you do the right thing. Do the right thing, and then the afterlife will take care of itself. Do the wrong thing, maybe it won't. You know, because we don't know. Well, maybe we don't know. In the Talmud... We have the same thing that people have here. Has anybody ever, um, I don't know, either personally or known someone who uh, went through a near-death experience and being willing to share whatever you know about? The, yeah. My husband um, was an emergency, who is a doctor, was an emergency room doctor. And he had a friend who was So your husband, I'm repeating this because this is being recorded and they can't hear you, but they can hear me only, whoever they might be someday. Um, the mythical they. So some of them are watching, but it's being recorded. They can only hear in the, oh, that's true. The people that are watching can't hear her either. Thank you. That's why I bring my wife so I can stay present. In any event, so your husband, who's an emergency doctor, had the experience of hearing people who died and were brought back to life talking about 
uh, seeing relatives come to to meet them. Yeah. Um, anybody else? Similar? Like that? Yeah. Who did she see come? Her her parents. She saw her parents coming, like in a rowboat, as if in a rowboat to the river Styx, to come and uh, to collect her. Yeah. Um, anyone else along those lines? Yes. My grandfather, whose name was Rabbi Dr. Bernard Drachman, he had his own synagogue in New York City, uh-huh. and um, he was friendly with Houdini. Oh. And uh, he and Houdini made up a um, some kind of a sign, um, uh, a language, uh-huh. so that whoever should die first uh, will be able to contact the other person. So, P.S. Houdini died first, and my grandfather never heard from him. Oh, well. <laughs> so your grandfather really wasn't that close with Houdini after all. So uh, they made up a, a language that they could talk after death, your grandfather and Houdini, and then he never contacted him, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there are several stories in the Talmud, uh, famous stories, about um, uh, Rabbi Nachman lay dying, and these are uh, stories between two rabbis. One's name is Rava, and the other is Nachman. So Rabbi Nachman lay dying. Rava said, show yourself to me after you die. Rabbi Nachman died and did appear to Rava in a dream. Much more thoughtful than Houdini. Um, (laughs) Rava asked, did you suffer much pain? And Rabbi Nachman answered, it was as easy as taking a hair from a pitcher of milk. But if God were to say, go back to the world as you were before, I would not want to go for the fear of death is so great there. I know. I knew you wouldn't like that. So, um, so the idea being that it wasn't the death experience itself that was horrible. It was as gentle as lifting a, a hair off of uh, the top of milk. You know, just a simple little thing, as gross as it may sound to my wife. The... Uh, but because the fear of death is so powerful in people, he wouldn't didn't want to come back and re-experience the fear of death, even though he'd already been there. Which, of course, is <clears throat> different from all of the literature that you read of people who literally have what they call near-death experiences, because every time you read those stories, those people all say they stop being afraid of dying after that. One of the more universal experiences that every clergy person that I know has had, every rabbi I know has had, and I certainly have had lots of times, uh, is the experience of being with someone at the end of their life and having them say they see somebody in the room who's died already. Uh, usually a parent or a grandparent. Uh, sometimes a child, if a child had died, uh, predeceased them. Uh, always 
somebody who died. It's never been somebody who's just living in the other, in another state. Um, it's always uh, someone who's died. Um, but uh, you know, all of us have have heard that experience uh, when Didi's mother was dying. Um, she at one point said, "What? I'm coming to you, Mama." Like she saw her mother, as if she saw her mother in the room. Um, and, um, I mean, I've had that numerous times with people that they, uh, that they see someone, uh, or perceive that there's someone in the room who, uh, predeceased them. Um, and obviously that's a consistent human experience. It's not just a modern, we can bring you back to life experience because after all, Throughout human history, people have almost died and not died for all kinds of reasons without all the modern equipment even that we have. Um, and, um, and very often they, they have that experience, which, um, look, if they really died, they would be dead. They wouldn't be back. So they, whatever the clinical, you know, technical thing is, they come back from not having quite died and and they share similar stories. The similar stories often bring comfort to people, uh, and um, and often are ways that that uh, give people a sense that there must be something going on after we die, because this is such a consistent human experience of of seeing people. Um, I don't know, and um, I can't tell you because I haven't gone through it myself. Um, but it's certainly, uh, it's, I mean, the literature is, is ripe with that. I mean, just even, not the Jewish literature, the, the famous Elizabeth Kubler-Ross literature, uh, of the many books that she wrote, uh, and spent her life studying, uh, dying people and near-death experiences and, um, and, uh, you know, and if you're looking to, to read those kinds of stories, her, her very powerful, uh, stories of, uh, Families in in car crashes where they have multiple people in the family and they're taken to hospitals and and not in the same room and um, uh, someone is dying and says it's okay because I see my brother my brother's here and and then and brother had just died five minutes before in another part of the hospital those kinds of stories that give people a you know a, for some people it seems spooky and. Whatever, and for other people, it just is a, a reinforcer of the, the the truth for them that clearly there's something, there's an alam haba, and there's something there, um, and get, gain comfort from that consistency of human spiritual experience. Um, and Judaism's, and you can find it in Judaism, because you can find anything in Judaism, just about almost anything, because there's such a range, which was why I recommend this book in the first place. Um, being a minority in a majority culture means meant and has meant for thousands of years that we have adapted and adopted the <clears throat> the most abiding theories and philosophies and theologies of the surrounding culture in which we lived because you can't avoid it. It's like everybody celebrates Christmas, right? You can't avoid celebrating Christmas. You know, for a month and a half, right, at least a month and a half, it's Christmas everywhere. It's Christmas songs. It's Christmas music. It's Christmas decorations. It's Christmas, Christmas, Christmas everywhere. No matter who you are, 
You can be the most orthodox Jew. You, you got Christmas all around you. You can't avoid it. And it affects the culture in which we live. We live in a Christian culture still, primarily. Primarily a Christian culture. And so Christmas is a national holiday. What sense, what do you mean? Christmas, we have separation of church and state. Why is Christmas a national holiday? Because we're a Christian country. So, and we are influenced by consciously and subconsciously the surrounding culture in which we live. It manifests itself in Jewish theology and Jewish thought by, for example, throughout the Middle Ages, uh, and one of the books that I recommend, if you really want to get heavy, is this book that's called Jewish Views of the Afterlife by Simcha Paul Raphael, which I don't know where my book went away, but it's a big book about this thick, and it goes into great detail it's like reading Dante's Inferno, you know, because throughout the Middle Ages, Jewish, the rabbis, wrote about hell, literally, the afterlife, exactly the way Christians were teaching about the afterlife, with the most gruesome and detailed descriptions of what will happen to you as punishment for all of your sins. I mean, like really detailed. Like if you, you know, if you sinned with your hand, then you end up with, you know, your hand being dismembered and hung, or you're hung from your hand. And if you descend this way, this part of your body, then this is the horrible thing that happened to that part of your body in the afterlife. And if you sinned with that part of your body, then this horrible thing happens to that part of your body. I mean, really gruesome details that I won't go into, but you can let your imaginations run wild and they'll never even touch what you can read that rabbis were writing about. Uh, because it was in the culture all around them. This is what everybody saw. This is what happened. You go to heaven if you're good. You go to hell if you're bad. So Judaism, for a long period, incorporated it. Most people like me, meaning somebody who grew up in the 1950s and 60s, as I did, in a reformed congregation in California, in this case, but in the United States, grew up learning... Jews don't really believe in the afterlife or in heaven and hell. Jews believe in this world and we're very this worldly and uh, you live on in the hearts of those who cherish your memories. You live on in the good deeds that you perform, which of course is also true. You live, and that's certainly what I was taught when I grew up. I was taught literally that Jews don't believe in, you know, in Olam Haba. That, uh, that was an ancient teaching, but we certainly don't believe in that anymore. We believe in uh, we sort of rationalized rational Judaism, and therefore, what matters is what you're doing right now. And you know, whatever happens in the afterlife, should it ever happen, uh, it takes care of itself. And so, your focus should be on today and on here and on here and now. Um, and and very often, people who are raised that way are surprised, if not shocked, to learn about this vast body of traditional Jewish literature in which there's heaven and hell, and afterlife, and a whole process, and there's a, there's, <clears throat> there's a, um, uh, a waiting period after you die in which you get cleansed of your sins before you can go to heaven, heaven being, <clears throat> okay, so what's heaven? Here's the question. What do you think heaven in Judaism is? Well, it depends on who's saying when the rabbis were writing about heaven in the Talmud, the, the rabbi's version of the Talmud of heaven is, you get to sit around a table and study all day. 
that's what heaven, you go to heaven, you sit around a table with gods at the head of the table studying Torah. Because what could be better than that? You know, it's like, remember Tevia? You know, I could sit by the synagogue and pray, you know, and discussing, you know, the holy books all day. That was like, wouldn't that be great? Because you wouldn't have to work. You don't have to work in heaven. Yes. Yes, women always do the work. That's the way it works. Um, they just don't get credit for doing the work. Men get credit, women do the work. That's, isn't that the way life generally works? Um, so, in the, and most of the rabbis were men in the Talmud. I was like leaving some room for Yentl to slip in, you know what I mean? Somewhere. Yeah, they were all men. They were all boys talking about boy things. But, you know, instead of like, we're going to go play basketball all day, we're going to sit around and study Torah because that was the ideal. What could be better than that? Uh, now, <clears throat> along with that, two different versions of heaven and hell. If I can even find these, it's amazing with 20 pages of notes. Uh, oh, not that one. What happens after you die? Well, Rob said, remember Rob? He was the guy that was hanging out with the Want to know what happens in the world to come. He was obsessed with the world to come, as some of us are. Rob said, the world to come is not at all like this world. In the world to come, there is no eating, no drinking, no procreation, no commerce, no envy, no hatred, no rivalry. The righteous sit with crowns on their heads and enjoy the radiance of God. Boring, right? The first Every time I share that with someone, the first thing that they say is, no wonder people want to go to hell. <laughs> Boring. Yeah. It does sound a little boring. But not if you're a Talmudic rabbi. You know, you, because sitting around hanging out with God means you get to, like, learn Torah. You get to learn from God. What could be better than learning from God? Yes, dear. I'm afraid to ask you what you want to know. Why? There'll be pie in the sky by and by. Yeah, the, so the question was, why do people, why is everyone so obsessed with the afterlife? And one answer is, when life sucks, you look for something better. Is this all there is? Is this life of pain and sorrow and suffering and drudgery and work and whatever? This is it? That's where I started with. People want to, this is it? And one of the answers to that is there'll be a reward. It won't be like this always. This is just, you know, this is just the ante room to the real feast. This is just the waiting room. I mean, there's eternity. This is like a blink of an eye, and then there'll be a payoff, and then there'll be a reward for your righteousness. So do the right thing, and there'll be a reward. Yeah, there was a... Yeah, and then here.
and then you don't. So one of the one of the reasons is because life isn't fair. At least it doesn't appear to be fair. It doesn't appear that there's justice in the world. Uh, often, to a lot of people, they see the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Often, in life, um, you'd be very proud of me. I just censored myself from pointing out some wicked and righteous people. um, No. Uh, In any event, that's the reality of life. It's like, you know, one of the most, the oldest and most fundamental religious questions is the, uh, what's called theodicy, technically, right, in in theological circles. Why, you know, why why do bad things happen to good people? Um, How do you explain suffering in the world? It should be that the righteous people get a, a reward and the wicked people don't. Of course, then there would be no free will, of course, because, you know, it, obviously. Um, what makes you righteous is you do it anyway. The sort of the definition of being righteous is that you do it even though it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a reward and you're going to get a payoff and you still may suffer and you still may get sick, and people you love are still going to die, and sometimes they die before you when, you know, they shouldn't, and all that. And yet, if you choose to do the right thing, that's what being righteous really means. You know, the Talmud, the rabbis of the Talmud were not dummies. They were very smart. They were, they were smart. And, for example, one of my favorite uh, passages of the Talmud is that Rabbis say it should be that if someone steals someone's seeds and plants them, they don't grow. That's what it should be. Because you stole those seeds. It should be, in the same passage they say, literally, it should be if a man forces himself on a woman, she wouldn't get pregnant. It should be. You don't understand? Oh, it should be. It should be, yes. And I was censored myself and didn't even go there. The, it should be, say the rabbis of the Talmud, that if somebody gets raped, she doesn't get pregnant. But in fact, the world follows the natural order of things. And if you steal seeds and plant them and take care of them and water them, they'll grow. And if you get raped and you happen to be fertile, you'll get pregnant. And, and in spite of that, and because of that, we have ethical free will and choice every time, in spite of the fact that what we think should happen doesn't always happen. That in fact, the world is the world, and it's not fair. And the meaning that we bring to the world comes from the choices that we make in our lives. So, you know, scharas <clears throat> shel mitzvah is the mitzvah, says the Talmud. The reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah. Not that there's a carrot out there, even though 
everybody at some point in our history said that also. But the reality is they were also smart enough to say the reward for the mitzvah is the mitzvah, whether there's an afterlife or not. And then they said, yes, but there is an afterlife because they're rabbis. So they always said, but there is ultimately, there are angels, we'll talk about them in a second, uh, and there is an afterlife, and there is a God of compassion and love, and that when you die, you get there. Wrongdoers of Israel who sin with their body go to Gehenna, they say, and they're punished there for 12 months. After 12 months, their body is consumed, and their soul goes to the wind, and they're scattered And eventually, after they're cleansed, they go back to God. The righteous, when they die, go back to God immediately. The holy righteous. The holy wicked takes them a whole year to get there. And the rest of us, somewhere in between. Which is why there's a Jewish tradition of reciting Kaddish when someone, when you're a mourner, for 11 months something less than 12 months, because the, one of the traditional rabbinic notions about the role of the Kaddish is the Kaddish saying the Kaddish every day, if you're an Orthodox Jew, a traditional Jew, saying the Kaddish literally helps the soul return to God. It's like one of the greatest tragedies is having no one to say Kaddish for you in traditional Jewish thought, because the notion was the saying, the recitation of those words literally helps your soul move closer and closer to God. <clears throat> Since the holy wicked take a whole year to get there, you wouldn't want to say Kaddish for a whole year for your loved ones because you wouldn't want to suggest that they're, they're holy wicked. But there's, the tradition is, you know, like we have unveilings at 11 months and, and uh, tombstones and uh, markers. Of course, we have markers in Jewish life based on the Torah, on uh, Jacob, whose favorite wife, Rachel, dies, and he sets up a matzeva, a marker, uh, on her grave, and which becomes the, the uh, example of what we're supposed to do, which is to mark people's graves. That doesn't happen in every culture. Don't forget. Every culture doesn't mark people, bury them and mark their graves. Lots of cultures just cremate bodies and scatter them to the wind, and you go back to the universe. We have a very different kind of death-obsessed culture in many ways. You know, we don't celebrate birthdays. We celebrate death days in Judaism. Right? Look, death days, right? We, uh, in American culture, we celebrate birthdays. The birthday of the president, the birthday of Martin Luther King, the birthday of this, we celebrate this. But in our Jewish civilizational culture, we more acknowledge deaths than births. Which goes back to what I said last, how I started, I think, the last session by a quotation that said the day of death is better than the day of birth, of one's birth, from Jewish tradition. And it was because of that. Because the idea is at the end of your life, you celebrate life. You celebrate the life that was lived and the accomplishments of that life and what that person meant. You know, the baby that got born this week, today, you got a baby born today? Where'd the baby get born today? There we go. Baby born today, a grandchild today, Mazel tov. There we go. A baby was born today. This cute little baby. What kind of baby was it? A little girl. A little girl. This cute little girl. Does she have a name yet? Yes, Maya. Maya. This cute girl, Maya, who was born today, is nobody. She's like a promise. She's like a, you know, 
And one of the wonders of birth is, oh my God, what's going to happen to this child? Where's she going to be? What's she going to say? What's she going to do? All of that, you know, and every parent's fantasy about how their kid's going to grow up and be whatever that parent's fantasy is. You know, a doctor, a rabbi, some, right? So, um, a drummer, (laughs) kid's going to grow up and be a drummer. Yes, but at the end of life, we know. So at the end of life, that's why obituaries are so powerful because they're our opportunity to say, you know, what somebody meant to us and other people in their lives. So, yeah. I have a problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. Which part of the city So, uh, reincarnation, the idea that, uh, that uh, this life isn't all there is, that you have a soul that's separate from your body, you're, you're living, your soul is living in your body, um, which is certainly another idea that Judaism kind of adopted in many ways from the surrounding cultures, because it's a common idea, um, and it became just a fundamental part of, of Judaism. We have a neshama, we have a we have a, a nephesh, we have a soul that's not our bodies. First of all, we all know who we are isn't our bodies. We have our bodies. Our bodies get bigger, they get stronger, they get thinner, they get whatever. They get sick, they get well. That's not who we are. You know, our body is what carries us around at the moment. Um, that's that's our, our experience of our bodies. I mean, I, the, I'm always telling people, so I'll tell it again, um, that... You know, when we have relationships with someone, it's not with their body. I mean, we may like their body, but that's not what the relationship is. The relationship is with their being, with their soul, with their nishama. That's the relationship. And the relationship isn't dependent upon our physical presence or how our physical presence is manifested that particular moment, whether we're sick or well. You know, whether we look good that day or we don't. Um, any more than your relationship is dependent upon the, the physical presence in the same room with people. You know, when your loved ones leave the room, you don't, they don't cease to exist for you. You know, if your son or daughter or whomever is living in New York or wherever and you're here, it's not like they disappeared. You still have the same relationship. It's in fact, just as profound. It's just as meaningful. It's just as real as if they were sitting next to you. You know, and when they're in the next room, it's just as real. And it's just as, and it's irrelevant if they're literally in the next room 
or in the next country, or dead. Or dead. Because if their body isn't in the planet anymore, it doesn't change your relationship either. Any more than if they're living, you know, in New York and you're not picking up the phone and calling them. You know, my parents are in Sacramento. It was nice that I was up there this last week. My father's 94th birthday. It was lovely. <clears throat> but whether I'm there or I'm here, I have the same relationship. Not for him, because the next day he didn't remember I was there. But <laughs> So I really have to be there for that relationship with him from his perspective, but not from mine. You know, from my perspective, the relationship is the same no matter where. And, and that's, that's a reality. That's an experience. That's not a belief. See, and part of what we need to do is separate our experience from our belief. You know, when people ask me, uh, do you believe in God? I always say, no, I don't believe in God. God is something I experience. And what I mean by God is something I experience in the everyday miracles of life. You know, in love, in courage, and in, in the things that, to me, are godly. That's my... It's not a belief. It's, it's experience. Um, and it's the same with relationships and the difference between the body and the soul. Or the physical and the spiritual. It's like, that. that's easier to comprehend. Because that's something we all experience. This is physical. You know, you can... See it, you can weigh it, you can feel it, you know it, this is how it exists. The things that matter in life are the spiritual. There's nothing physical that's the thing that matters most in life. All of us, that's our experience, that's what we know. We know that the things that matter most in life are not the physical, they're the spiritual. And the thing about spiritual is they, they aren't tied down by the laws of physics of time and place and space. You know, that's why this conversation is so compelling to everybody, really, because we know the things that matter most are not the things we can touch and feel and see and hear in our lives, for any of us. You know, there are things we can't exactly express and can't exactly describe. You know, the most powerful being love, different versions of love. That's why it's the most written about and sung about and blah, blah, blah for everything because you can't capture it. You can't describe love. You only, you can experience love. You experience it or you don't. You know, so people strive to try to understand the, what the reality beyond this physical reality because we know the things that matter most are not physical. That's part of the connection. That's part of what draws us to that. Reincarnation has been a traditional part of Jewish thought as well. It's called Gilgul Hanefesh, recycling of, of souls. Started around the 12th century, maybe, with mystical Kabbalah and Kabbalistic mystical texts. Uh, and it requires a belief that the souls have independent lives from our bodies. The Zohar, one of the two main mystical texts, suggests that pains the righteous feel in this world aren't necessarily from personal sins or conse- but consequences of acts committed in a previous incarnation or maybe uh, by some ancestor that passed on to us. And, you know, uh, in the earliest mystical writings, there was something called transmigration of souls. It's a kind of a form of punishment. But as you said, it was an opportunity for souls to cleanse themselves of, of their impurities before moving on. The incarnation was also seen as a vehicle for atonement. 
you know, you screwed up in this life and come back and try to get it right. Try to get it right and try to get it right and try to get it right. You know, um, some Kabbalists said that wicked souls, righteous souls only need three cycles and wicked souls need a thousand. So for some people, they'd rather be wicked because they get to hang around here longer. Um, you know, and it was defended and attacked by different rabbinic traditions and throughout till, till today, you know, as being real or, or not real. Um, the Maimonides of the world and the, those kind of thinkers who were rationalists rejected the ideas of reincarnation as being not rational to them. But it's up to you because you can find it traditionally in Judaism. And they, Someone asked about cremation. We, we, I think I mentioned it last time, but, you know, uh, the, the initial, again, it's about, uh, Judaism is very concerned about death and afterlife and, and the, the dignity of the human being, beginning with the first, uh, the most important idea in the Torah, in chapter one, that human beings are made but sell them Elohim in the image of God. If we're created in the image of God, the rabbi said, you don't destroy the image of God. So you don't destroy the body. You let God take the body. And the body isn't yours. That was the other thing. The traditional rabbinic notion is your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. God gave your body in the earth. God put your soul into this body. God will take this when God decides to take this body back and do whatever God wants to do with it. That was the traditional notion. So um, sort of Stepping on God's territory and cremating your body was seen as a negative. Then there was the idea of that cremation was wrong because we believed in resurrection as well in traditional Judaism. That ultimately everybody's going to get resurrected and go back to and live in Israel, in Jerusalem. It's going to be very crowded. But everyone's going to, it's crowded enough now. Everyone's going to get resurrected and all, you know, at some point all Jewish souls originally were at Mount Sinai. Then they got re- they got born into bodies throughout history, and at some point, at the end of days, we're all going to get resurrected, and you're going to need your body, so you shouldn't destroy your body. That was another traditional idea. I know it's not rational, but it was another traditional notion about cremation. Then, in the post-Holocaust era, then there was a reaction against, well, we're not going to do what Hitler wanted to do to us voluntarily, so we shouldn't cremate ourselves, because that's what Hitler wanted to do, and did. Let's cremate six million Jews, so now we're going to be like Hitler and cremate ourselves. So then there was a Postmodern aversion to cremation because of that. And in fact, as I'm sure you know, in the liberal Judaism, people cremate themselves not as much as they bury themselves, but it's, in, it's on the rise. Cremation is on the rise. Um, and it's the, no pun intended, it's the hottest thing in the funeral business. Um, just couldn't think of any other way to say it. But, but, but it's uh, if you talk to people in the funeral business, which I've been doing lately, um, one of the things they say is this is this is the growing trend in the funeral business is cremation across the board in, in Judaism as well. But still, there's the tremendous reticence in the Jewish community for cremation. So, but if you go to the Jewish cemetery, go to Hillside, you'll see areas where they have little tiny plots that are there for ashes, you know, because that people do it um, and. Um, your choice to do it is you're not violating any liberal Jewish law in doing that. Let me say something about angels while I can still talk about angels and then we're out of time. Yes? I always wondered what is the significance of putting rocks on the 
Ah, what's the significance of putting rocks on the grave? You know there's a Jewish tradition of putting rocks. When you go to visit some a grave, to leave a stone. Because if you left a sandwich, it wouldn't work. It was really the reason. <laughs> some cultures, they leave sandwiches. Yeah, sure. Cultures, they bury people with food and all that stuff, right? It's cultures that do that. That so that you know when you go to the next next stage of life, you'd have some sustenance. Jews were never that way. Um, we kept the food for ourselves uh, at home. You bury the person, you go home and eat. You don't leave the food there. Um, that would make a really good routine, though, don't you think? Anyway, so um, instead, so why why is there a tradition of leaving a stone? What else could you leave? What are you going to leave? What are you going to leave if you're poor? Anybody can leave a stone. It became the tradition, starting in Eastern Europe, became the tradition because it was easy. Everybody could find a stone to leave. It was making your mark, literally was leaving a marker that you were there both for the deceased person as if the deceased person wouldn't tell otherwise, but um, and for anybody else who passed by to see somebody visited this grave. And they weren't likely to take them unless they were going to put them on their own grave, so, you know, of, the, of their own loved ones, which sometimes people do. Um, and flowers, not so much in Jewish tradition. You know, not so much flowers. In part because flowers die so quickly, and it's like bringing dead to the dead um, in many ways. Um, and also because it seemed like a waste. Jews didn't waste. We, you know, a stone is a symbol of I was there. And, there's some, and also, stones go back a long way. The Hebrew word for a marker, matseva, also means a stone. So you set up a stone marker, and you leave a stone, it's your own marker. It's the same kind of thing. So... Um, it's in keeping with the same notion of, of the tradition of marking a grave. And so that's where that tradition comes from. Um, it was a way of, of both... A, you, you know, you, you go to a grave, you want to do something. I mean, emotionally. You, you know, you, if you go to visit somebody, you go, people go, and they talk to them, and they schmooze um, with their loved ones. They sit. Some people bring food and have picnics. Um, I mean, and, and spend time there uh, at grave sites. Certainly was a tradition in Jewish life at, at, uh, on the festivals and the holidays, just as we have a tradition of yisker, of memory. You know, we recite Kaddish. Um, as I mentioned before, when someone dies, and, uh, and anyone who looks at the Kaddish or has been to a funeral that I've done or probably any of the clergy here, know that the Kaddish doesn't say anything about death or dying or mourning or grief or sadness. We say that prayer, but it's exactly the opposite. It's magnified, glorified, sanctified is God. That's the, in a long version of what the Kaddish says. It's in fact an affirmation of the gift of life that you're saying over the person who died. And in a sense, it's the wisdom, I think, always the wisdom of Jewish tradition to recognize that your grief is a reflection of your love. If you didn't care, and you're caring, and that it matters that this person was in your life, otherwise you don't grieve. 
You don't grieve for a name of someone you don't know that pops up in the paper. Nobody grieves. You may be shocked at something that somebody died, you know, because somebody pushed them out of a plane or something. You go, oh my God, what a horrible thing. But you don't grieve for that person. You don't know that person. That doesn't, it's not a meaningful uh, memory for you, experience for you. You grieve because you love. You grieve because you have a relationship. And so the Kaddish is a way of saying thank you, God, for the gift of this life that meant enough that I'm grieving, that I'm sorry, that I'm, that I'm sorrowful, that I have tears. You know, and in Jewish tradition, we recite the Kaddish, of course, wins at the funeral. We recite the Kaddish at the yort site, which is the anniversary of the death of the person, either in English yort site or the Hebrew yort site, depending on what your life is. Um, last month, Didi and I both had uh, deaths of yort sites for parents, and let you know, you have a candle, you light it at home, you say the Kaddish um, as a as a reminder. And in Jewish tradition, you say Kaddish, you have a Yisker memorial, Yisker memory, memorial service on Yom Kippur, and then you have it four times a year. And all the festivals of the Jewish year, you have one at the end of Sukkot, we have it here, we have one, nobody comes, but we have them. We have small, people usually come. We have one at the end of Sukkot, we have one at the end of Passover, we have one at Shavuot, those are the three traditional biblical festivals. Um, and on Yom Kippur, and it, it's a time of memory, and it's a time of acknowledging the person's life. You know, I put that quotation on the wall when we built this building for a reason, from Proverbs. The human soul is the light of God, says Jewish tradition. What is our soul? That's how we experience God. We experience God in relationship with someone. That's how we experience God. Even Biblically, I mean, that goes back thousands of years. Our ancestors recognized God isn't necessarily something that's going to drop from heaven, you know, some revelation to us. You experience God in the intimacy of the most profound relationships you have. What could be more powerful than that? Nothing. And so that's where God shows up. Um, Angels. angels. What's the role of angels in Judaism? Angels in... uh, Uh, who remembers angels in the Torah? Where do we have angels in the Torah? Jacob's ladder. We have Jacob. Yeah, we have, remember, uh, we have Abraham. In Jewish tradition, Abraham, uh, well, we have angels when, uh, the most famous are probably the Jacob story, because Jacob, you know, goes to sleep. In the middle of nowhere, lies down, has that famous dream of the ladder, Sulam, it's called in Hebrew, which could be a staircase, but stairway to heaven, you know, that's um, where it came from. The, there's a, a ladder, and it said, Malachim Yordim, Olim Yordim. Angels were going up and going down. I always love that because it says angels are going up first before they come down, which just shows this is where angels come from. They come from here, and they're going up first. Angels are going up and going down. Um, so you want to look for angels, just sort of look around the room, you find your angels. Angels go up and go down. Um, and then God speaks to angels go up, and angels are malachim in Hebrew, which is the Hebrew word for angels, one of them. Uh, the most common one means messengers. Literally, it means messenger. What's an angel? An angel is a messenger from God. 
That's why I say you can find angels all over the place, you know, bringing messages. Um, the other place that we find the angels is Jacob again, the other end of Jacob's story, not, not totally the other end, three quarters of the way through. Jacob wrestles with an angel, allegedly, by the side of the river, and he's a messenger, this angel, to he. Jacob wrestles and then gets a name change. He becomes Israel, gets his name, gets a new name, from Yaakov to Israel, and Israel means God wrestler. That's what it means. Israel, it's like struggles with God. You are you are a God wrestler. That we're supposed to be like Jacob, because Jacob is Israel. He gets the name changed to Israel. We are all Israel. We are all supposed to be God wrestlers, wrestling with angels, trying to figure out who we are. Uh, angels appear to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Hagar, out in the wilderness, an angel comes and says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. Um, Isaiah the prophet ascends to heaven and sees angels coming up and down. Angels are singing a famous phrase that's in every service, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzavot, Meloch, Kavodo. That's a phrase from the prophet Isaiah of what angels were singing up in heaven when Isaiah went to heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, of Adonai of hosts. That, that's what angels do. They sit around and sing about God. Talmud says there are four archangels who stand on all, side of God, all sides of God. And they become symbolic. Some of you have angel names. In fact, I have an angel name. My Hebrew name is Michael. Michael that was my, used to be my name. My used to be my middle name when I was born. Um, Michael was my middle name. Now it's Carr. But used to be Michael. And um, so my Hebrew name is Michael. It was named after him some great-grandparent somewhere in Europe who I never met. Um, and Michael means, is an name of an angel, one who is like God. So there are four angels. Michael, which means who is like God. Gavriel, they all end in L, because L is a generic word for God. And anybody's name ends in L is something to do with God, by the way. Gavriel, which means the strength of God. Uriel, which means the light of God. And Raphael, which means the healing of God. Those are the four angels that, according to rabbinic literature, stand on, surround God, and take care of us, these angels, depending on what you need. You need strength, you get Gavriel shows up. You know, you need healing, Raphael shows up. You need light, Uriel shows up. If you need to play drums, I show up. <clears throat> Michael. Uh, anyway, <laughs> What's interesting is what's really, my parents didn't know any of this, but what's really interesting is in the Talmud it says, Michael is standing on God's right, corresponds to the tribe of Reuben. <laughs> now what's really crazy about that is, when I was born, my name wasn't Reuben, so my last name was a whole different last name, so just go now. She works in mysterious ways, doesn't she? She works... Uriel is on God's left, corresponding to the tribe of Dan, which was located in the north. Gabriel, this is what the Talmud says. Gabriel is in front, corresponding to the tribe of Judah, and Moses, and Aaron. And Raphael is in the back, corresponding to the tribe of Ephraim, which was in the west. So it's like there was this notion in uh, rabbinic literature that God was surrounded by angels, and these angels you can call upon when you need things. Angels either bring messages, they fight battles, they heal the sick, they inspire strength, they bring enlightenment. That's, you know. And there's a whole angelology in Judaism, if you're interested, that you can go look up. 
I don't have a particular book about it, but it's there. Uh, Google probably knows. Google knows everything. Google is the new Talmud. Um, and much quicker. Boy, so slow to go through the Talmud. Um, Google can find everything. But, yes, the, the idea of art is, uh, are angels a traditional part of Judaism? Absolutely. From the Torah on, uh, angels are at God's side and at ours. Um, someone asked, uh, is communicating with the dead witchcraft and about psychics and ghosts and afterlife and communication. So, uh, if you know the Bible as a, in the whole, not just the Torah, but later books, you'll know that there were instances in the Bible stories about, uh, this was positive thinking, wasn't it? Um, the st- stories about, about um, communing with the dead uh, and witches. The witch of Endor, there's witches that that before they went into battle, some of the kings of Israel would consult with psychics, with, quote, witches who were psychics, to ask, you know, those who had already passed before whether they were going to win the battle or not. They usually came back and said, what are you asking me for? Literally. But um, but there was this notion that people communicate with the dead. Um, I I would say there is not a... Jewish position on psychics. That's what I would say. There, there isn't a Jewish position on psychics. Um, uh, other than um, there's an Orthodox position that you shouldn't talk to them. But I'm not Orthodox. But because it says in the Torah you shouldn't come in with witches. You shouldn't hang out with witches. And, they're, and in traditional Judaism... Even though it's, there's instances in the Bible of doing that, in the Talmudic times, the, the rabbis said you shouldn't go there because you shouldn't go there. Uh, not because it was a sin, but because you shouldn't go there. And you shouldn't go there because it might lead you to idolatry. I was going to say dancing, but that's a whole other story. Uh, that's a joke I didn't want to get into. But um, but that's why, you know, most of the time when the rabbi said, don't go there, it's not because it was inherently wrong. It's what, it's a, it was because they have a, a principle in rabbinic literature called uh, a Torah, build a fence around the Torah. And, and there are lots of rules and laws in Jewish life that aren't really because the law, the act is wrong. It's what you might do if you do that act that's wrong. Slippery slope, yeah. It's like, you know, <clears throat> it's like it, there's a traditional Jewish law. We don't do it. Well, we didn't do it when I was a senior rabbi. Maybe we do now. No. <laughs> we don't, uh, you're not supposed to blow the shofar if, the, if Rosh Hashanah falls on, on Shabbat. Okay? So if Rosh Hashanah is on Shabbat, you're not supposed to blow the shofar. Why? There's nothing wrong with blowing the shofar in theory on Shabbat, except for there's a law, a rabbinic law, that you don't blow the shofar on Shabbat. Why not? Because you're not supposed to work. Blowing the shofar isn't work. But what if I went to blow the shofar and I went, something wrong with my shofar. Hang on. (laughs) Fixing something is work. There's 39 categories of work in the Talmud about what you can't do on Shabbat. 
So blowing the shofar, there's nothing wrong with. Fixing the shofar, there's something wrong with. So to build a fence around the Torah means don't blow the shofar, you won't get in trouble. You know what I mean? And there's lots of Jewish laws, rabbinic laws, that are exactly that. They have nothing to do with what it is. They have to do with what you might lead to. It's like the rabbis had no faith in people at all, frankly. They, really, they had no faith in people that you would like think, oh, I'm not supposed to do that, so I won't do that. Yeah. So does that mean that if your Probably. Well, no, that's because pressing the button on the elevator might make a spark, and you're not supposed to light a light. And so in theory... But it's like, that's so convoluted. All of that stuff is so convoluted that it's literally, it's mostly built on the same principle, though. It's not doing something so that it won't do something that you're not supposed to do, even though the doing the first thing isn't really what you're not supposed to do. It's, it's, yeah. Um, well, you're not, you don't do anything. You just get it. You can be passive. I mean, in Orthodox, so you get in, you're not doing anything. It's doing it by itself. But in any event, but, but yes, it's that kind of twisted logic, convoluted logic that is endemic in, in Jewish law, in traditional Jewish law. Um, I can't remember why I was even telling you that. Oh, so you shouldn't, can, you, you shouldn't talk to psychics slash witches, not because there's something wrong with talking really to a psychic, but because where it might lead you to believe in something other than what you're supposed to believe. So be my guest if you want to go talk to a psychic. You can say Rabbi Rubin said it's okay. Um, you know, because you have to dis- distinguish between traditional Judaism and the rest of us. And the rest of us who are doing our best, all of us, to make Judaism as meaningful as possible recognize that all of these rules somebody invented. Somebody invented all of these rules, like the ones I just told you that we made up, like some crazy rabbi said, no, don't blow the shofar. What if you're going to, what if it doesn't work and you fix it? It's like, then say don't fix it, but you can blow it or whatever. Um, so either, there's only two ways of looking at Judaism anyway. It all came from heaven or it didn't. God dictated it all or God didn't. One or the other. If God dictated the whole Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then all the subsequent stuff that happened after that, God dictated too, then you don't do it because God said so. That's the answer. It's a perfectly reasonable answer, and there are a lot of people who live that way. I don't do this because, in my mind, as far as I'm concerned, God said so. Light candles at, you know, 542 this week and 550 next week because God said so. You either believe that or you don't. If you don't, then you recognize that all of Jewish civilization is the creation, the invention of the Jewish people in our march through history and trying to make sense and live our lives and have a sense of purpose and meaning and holiness, separating out the everyday from the sacred. You know, in Hebrew, Kodesh, Kedusha, holiness means separate, distinct. What makes something holy is it's not the ordinary and everyday. You know, you get married to someone, you go, Haray at mikudeshetli, be holy to me, be separate from me, from every other relationship, that's what makes it holy. Plus it's her, that would make it holy enough. But, you know, that's what holiness means. Shabbat is holy because there's six days, and then, boom, a separate day happens to be this one. You know, and everything that's 
sacred is because it's separate and separated out. Human beings did that. We are meaning makers. We make meaning. We decide that a kiddush cup is a kiddush cup and not just a glass. You know, what makes a kiddush cup a kiddush cup? Not that it's, is there one in here? Yeah. Never mind. Look, there isn't even a kiddush cup in here. Hmm, they're being cleaned. You see, they're being cleaned. Anyway, I was going to show you a beautiful silver kiddush cup. But it's not the silver kiddush cup. If anybody been to, camp, to Jewish camp? Anybody go to Jewish camp ever? Okay, if you're at Jewish camp and you're having Shabbat out in the woods somewhere and someone has a Dixie cup and they're going, Baruch HaTadonah and you're playing guitar and you're singing, that's a kiddush cup. It's just as kiddushy as, uh, you know, the most gorgeous piece of silver that you're going to find in a museum, in the Jewish Judaic Museum, right? It's not the, what it's made of that makes it a Kiddush cup, that makes it holy, that makes it sacred at that moment. It's that we say, poof, it's a Kiddush cup. And we do that with everything. And all of this stuff and all of these ideas throughout the thousands of years of Jewish history wrestling with what's mean to live and die and how do we keep human beings sacred, part of the the rationale behind rules about mourning and death and grieving and how you take care of the body and how when someone, in traditional Judaism, when a body dies, you keep a shomer, a guard, someone who watches the body so that it gets, you clean the body, you wash the body, you treat it with loving care. You don't have open caskets in Judaism because it, it's a, it's a denigrating of the, and objectifying of the body instead of focusing on the being, the person, all of a sudden the body becomes an object that we look at. And so we don't do that in tradition, traditionally in Judaism. Um, you have a closed casket. All part of that, uh, seeing the human being created in God's image. Do you have a question somewhere? Nope. Um, in any event, the, all of this is how we as the Jewish people throughout time have created customs, traditions, and then laws and rules that built our society into what it is, our civilization. And Judaism is the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. It's constantly been changing and growing and evolving. And what we choose to do today in the 21st century is just as legitimate and equally legitimately Jewish as what the rabbis did in the Talmud in the year 450 of the Common Era. Why should that be right and this one not be? You know, they responded to the needs and realities of their time as we all are responding to the needs and realities of our time as a continuous process in the evolution of Jewish civilization. There isn't a right way and a wrong way to do it. There are lots of right ways of doing all, just about everything, including thinking about and wrestling with issues of life and death. You know, we don't have a lot of talk about ghosts. We have a few examples of ghosts in Jewish literature, but not a lot. Um, we don't have a whole ghost sort of thing. We have a couple of m- m- mentions in the Bible about ghosts showing up. Um, but um, we don't really talk about ghosts much, so there's not much to say about ghosts. Um, and I never learned about unicorns, so I can't really tell you about but if they were there at the time, they would have been put in the ark. So the only thing I can say is they must not have been there. Because according to the Torah, 
Noah put every animal in the ark, which I really don't want to go to because the idea of what that must have been like was crazy. Imagine, he saves all these animals. And what's the very first thing that he does when he lands? Starts eating animals. Anyway, so before that, it was like only we were vegetarian before Noah. In the, in the Garden of Eden, we're only given the animal, no, no animal. We don't eat any animals in the Garden of Eden. We're only told to eat vegetables and things that grow on trees and in the ground. The first time we eat meat is after the flood. Just think about it for a while. Just figured I'd give you something to cogitate on. Okay. My view. I have to end because I'm late already. So I'll end with my view. Sorry. Um, but if you come to this one and you ask me questions about this, I'll answer those too because you know how I go. Um, my view. My view is actually very simple. Uh, the short version is I know that I don't know what happens. Uh, the slightly longer version is I... My experience is that we're more than our bodies. That's what I said before. It's my my rabbi experience, my life experience, my constant uh, experience of of uh, of people in life and death situations, and being with people when they die, and and being with with people when they're dying, um, and uh, having the consistency of uh, seeing people who uh, lived before. I've read, like, most of the literature on death and afterlife and uh, near-death experiences and, and all of that, uh, something that I was also fascinated with. Uh, you know, my father, my biological father, died when I was four, and um, I've uh, been lucky to have my second father, my non-biological father, but my lifelong father till today, since I was six, because he's 94, as I mentioned. So... Um, but I also grew up obsessed with death and dying and trying to figure out what death and dying was about uh, because of the death of my father, I'm sure. Um, and my sister and I, my sister's two years older, so she was six when my father died, um, spent untold hours talking about death and dying and what it means and what it should mean and what where dad go and all that kind of stuff and then trying to figure it out. So... Um, my belief is that um, we're more than our bodies because that's what I've experienced. And I have faith that, um, that life has meaning. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be doing the work that I do and the life that I have chosen to live as a rabbi um, for these last 40 years. And... Um, and so I, uh, some of it's a, a leap of faith that, uh, you know, hamevin yavin, as there's a Hebrew expression, those who know will know, you know, that you'll, whatever it will be, will be. That my, uh, my, the only thing I can do in life is to do the best version of life I can do. And have faith that um, the rest will take care of itself. Uh, I've been to psychics. I've done uh, all kinds of things that other people have done um, and found them fascinating. I went to once, uh, after reading Many Lives, Many Masters, I went to a past life regression hypnotist 
and had that experience, and they were all very cool experiences, and, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, either way, it just sort of rounded out the the opportunities to experience life in as many different ways as possible and to have a sense of how people, where they seek when they wrestle with what is it all about and how do you find meaning and how do you cope when someone you love dies and there's a hole in your heart that never heals from that because you don't get over the death of loved ones. You know, life changes and grief has a life of its own. Um, it's not something you get over. It's something you live with and that that can help grow your soul to be deeper and more compassionate. And I think that's part of what our job is. Our job is to to be compassionate and um, to help realize that who we are matters and what we say matters and what we do matters in life and to inspire that in other people. And so to me, to the degree that wrestling with these issues of life and death and afterlife can inspire me in that way, they become meaningful endeavors to continue to look into and to wrestle with um, because I think that's what life is all about.